You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Knife here with, always... Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be doing the fan-requested 1965 Roman Polanski film, Repulsion. This request coming into us hot by Chris from BTK, our good friends at Bind Torture Cast. It's like our podcast sibling out there. Yeah, it's our older brother. Older? I always say that they're older just because they have... More than ha- more more than twice as many episodes. Yeah, that and if you add all their ages up, they're older because there's three of them. It's true. They're all except Luke older than you, but I'm the oldest out of all of us. I think. I don't know. Steve's an anomaly. That's Steve's true. a mystery man. I always just envision you as like the oldest person on earth. Probably, <laughs> I probably am. But thank you, Chris, because this is a, a really interesting one for me specifically. I really enjoy this film. And I can really relate to it as a psychological horror. It's about time we went back to some psychological horror. We've been waiting in the deep pools of slasherdom for a long time. And as much as we love those movies, it's nice to get ourselves out of the bloody waters. I like waiting in the bloody waters. Well, I like it too. But it is nice to have a change of pace and uh, put my monocle on and get a little sophisticated around here. A little sophisticated, my gosh. I feel very ill-equipped to talk about Catherine Deneuve because she is a screen queen. Not like the scream queens that we're used to dealing with here. She is a maven. She's a film study maven. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely out of my element to really talk about her 200 other films that I've never seen. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. We're too dumb to talk about this. (laughs) Next. (laughs) I, I love her in this. And as far as horror, you want like horror or even psychological drama, she is beautiful in The Hunger. Mm-hmm. Any horror fan, vampire fan would be yes. familiar with her from that. And uh, a psychological drama. And like it's not even that much of a psychological drama as much as a musical, Dancer <laughs> in the Dark from Lies Von Yes. Wonderful film. And I really oh, enjoyed yeah. that. And I enjoyed her in that. And you get a kind of a cool span of her career mm-hmm. from this to The Hunger to Dancer in the Dark. Mm-hmm. You get a, a, the three faces, the mother maiden crone kind of look from Catherine Deneuve, <laughs> even though she's far from a crone even even now, right? No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a beautiful woman, extremely beautiful in this, and extremely fragile. And it's that golden era of black and white filmmaking, especially psychological dramas, like talking about Hitchcock films. She would have made, and it's been said before in other writing, that she'd have made a perfect Hitchcock blonde. Yeah, a beautiful blonde, just the way Hitchcock liked them. Beautiful eyes, very expressive eyes, which come into play in this film in a, in a huge way. Well, what's asked of her is a lot of acting chops that are not in how she's delivering dialogue it's a lot of body language it's a lot of looks that's heavy lifting any actor will tell you that look you learn your lines you deliver them convincingly as if you're saying them for the first time but if it's not there in your eyes and your face and your body language i mean it's part of the whole set and taking away dialogue and asking for purely physical performances can also be 
inhibiting to a lot of actors, but I mean, she rises above that and performs this expertly. Do you think it's something that's lost in psychological horror now where we're relying on visuals to be a little over the top? We're relying on visuals to have gore, blood, body horror to express what's going on psychologically. Psychological horrors do have a tendency nowadays in modern filmmaking to want to shock the audiences with at least some images, disturbing, grotesque, however you want to look at it. Also, one of the big things that happen in modern horror, which does exist in older horror, but certainly now more than ever, is cueing music to create tension when there's really nothing else going on. If they don't want to have too much blood, gore, and guts on the screen, if you just cue tense uh, music sessions. Also, techniques that happen in psychological horror is scares for the audience, whereas they're not scares for the character, which I always find very strange. If the character, and what I mean by that is, oh, you know, a perfect example, uh, the a more recent film, Sinister. When you're watching a scene with Ethan Hawke walking through a hallway and there's a bunch of ghost children around him, he's not aware of that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Only us as the audience knows that and we're waiting for him to turn around and the tension comes, is he going to see these apparitions the way that we see them? But of course, that doesn't actually happen. I think that... In older films like this, I mean, obviously we've talked about before, a lot of the tension comes from necessity, budgetary constraints. Nowadays, there's less budgetary constraints on things. Not that movies have all the money in the world, and some of these bigger psychological thrillers that do come out, they're in that mid-range movie, so you're looking at a budget of about $20 million, nothing to fucking sneeze at. But you can do visual effects for so much cheaper nowadays, especially with the advent of computer technology, that it's more, you're more inclined for just sight. sight, I was going to call them sight gags, but they're usually not gags. But (laughs) In a psychological horror, no. (laughs) No. I think what's lost is relying almost totally on your actors to convey that tension and fear. I think what modern movies done has taken a lot of weight off of the actor's shoulders and are relying on the visual effects and the musical cues to do most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, people do make fun of a lot of leading men in psychological horrors for their um, the fact that they can't act or the, the one look that they have on their face, the only look they have on their face. They have, like, frozen face. Yeah. And they just don't emote and they can't emote. And yeah, we do rely too heavily on those musical cues. Kind of long stares, mouth kind of half open, and you're just leaning into something very, very slowly. That's what's asked of a lot of male performers uh, in these. Women, it's like, can you get you sweaty? Can you get you shaking? Can you get that one big pop scream in there? Furrow your brow and keep your eyes wide. That's all you need to really do as a female... (laughs) psychological drama or horror actors. And that's not a knock. I mean, like modern horror psychological thrillers that come out today, some of them I like quite a bit and we'll probably eventually get to doing some on the show. Mm -hmm. But there's just something about this era of filmmaking. I mean, first of all, you have uh, Roman Polanski doing the first in what's considered his apartment trilogy, a 1965 Repulsion. Yeah, the one we're doing right now, (laughs) 1965's Repulsion, 1968 Rosemary's Baby, and then 1976 The Tenant. I wonder why such a large gap, and I haven't seen The Tenant, unfortunately, mm. but there is a real 
a real world of difference between this and Rosemary's Baby. So I can't compare with a tenant that was made almost 10 years after the fact. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about Rosemary's Baby, I'd say the primary difference in this is just there's a lot more characters. There's a lot more dialogue. There's, I mean, mean, it's in color. And and you can see that Polanski was making less of an art house film, which is fine because like Rosemary's Baby was what it was. It was it was the idea by uh, William Castle originally to take this book that he had read and turn it into his reemergence into the Hollywood field as a serious director. And you know this is going to win Oscars, and this is what's going to elevate me to the stratosphere. Buying the properties for this movie himself, and then needing distribution like you do. And then yeah. when you're dealing with studios, they said, "Wouldn't it be? What do you say if we use your age and experience?" But we take a young, hot director like Roman Polanski with his new modern ideas. Because I guess with William Castle, they would have felt, nah, we're just, now we're back with in Vincent Price territory. Yeah, where are you going to put the cobwebs anyway? <laughs> where are all the thrills, chills, and spills? Yeah. The tingler is going to be around the corner any minute. So they were looking to hedge their bets and, and start uh, fomenting the auteur directors. Roman Polanski doing Repulsion is exactly what got him Rosemary's Baby. Exactly 100% what got him that movie. It's that claustrophobic kind of set and those, you know, close psychologies. You find a lot more subtlety in Repulsion where people are constantly telling her what to do, say, think, feel. Uh, A lot more subtlety. But it is that same sort of character translated in Rosemary's Baby for sure. Absolutely. A little more clearly telegraphed for... The larger audience and probably like what three times the budget probably mm-hmm. this is made and, for sixty five thousand pounds so that's like yeah and also really. you know uh, polanski filming this thing in a functioning city it like not in a far it's not a set in a castle yeah. far away this is a modern story about modern people and you can see yourself in the city much like rosemary's baby let's put it in new york let's put it in an apartment yeah i mean now when looking back on it it seems like one of those impossibly large apartments that I'm just like as if, as if. Like but. Kiefer Sutherland's apartment in Flatliners? Yeah. Impossibly awesome apartments? Yeah. But with Repulsion, again, this is a very relatable story. And, and contemporary audiences would have been taken aback by the fact that they were dealing with a movie that had horror elements into it, but it wasn't Dracula on a castle someplace. It was more like Hitchcock, who did Psycho and then did The Birds. And these were modern places that we could relate to. It reminds me somewhat of Vertigo as well. Yes. I really enjoyed Vertigo and I could really relate to that as well. Although I do wish that the genders of the lead characters had been swapped. Because just for my own personal thing, it would be nice to see a girl having to endure what the main character in Vertigo was enduring. Mm -hmm. um, Having had problems with Vertigo. But now I think that he would have gotten along a lot better dating Carol from Repulsion, really. He wouldn't have had to deal with stares so much. Now, as far as audiences relating, though, I can't see a lot of audiences relating to this the same way that we do. We really like to watch movies in a context as best we can from the point of view of the audience, the contemporary audience at the time, especially with older films. Uh, We give a lot of a pass to older horror films Mm -hmm. because say with like Dracula Frankenstein that would have been the scariest thing on the screen would have mm-hmm. been terrifying mm-hmm. as scary as Saw was to mm-hmm. some people when it first came out 
watching Repulsion, though, there's some things that we just simply can't put ourselves into, especially a lot of the mind frames of the way that men and women treat one another. Mm-hmm. Because we just simply don't behave like that as a society, by and large. Although the problems that women have with men catcalling them on the street, the problems that people have with personal space, the problems that people have identifying what is um, domestic violence, because a lot of people can't even recognize what those things are still, those things don't get really seen for what they are when people watch this. And I think, I'm pretty sure that audiences at the time wouldn't have seen the way that men are treating the women around them in this film, the way that women are reacting to the way that men are treating them in this film. I I don't think that it would have really hit home. And I think this film is a lot more effective now. I really do. Now, do you think it's because people around Carol are not noticing, acknowledging, or caring that she clearly has a mental disorder? Mostly, yes. I think that mental mental disorder aside, because she does seem to have um, slight obsessive compulsive disorder. Some Mm -hmm. people would say it's pronounced, but I don't think so. It's very slight. We're not talking like... Uh, Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. No, no, no. Kind of (laughs) pronounced, you know. But she does have a few OCD compulsions. But you can explain a lot of those away with the way that people are acting around her. It's not Mm. necessarily her OCD. She has every right to do things like remove that man's toothbrush and um, straight razor from her cup. Because that's fucking disgusting. And I'm fucking disgusted by that. And I wish that they would have had a scene of her washing the cup Mm -hmm. and drying it. And checking for spots and then putting it back. Yeah. It really, like, I don't think it's OCD of her to remove his stuff from her space. Because that's her space. And that's her cup. And someone putting their toothbrush in your cup is just gross. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it depends on who's watching this, right? At what context you're going to take that. Um, she does seem to have agoraphobia. And that mm-hmm. becomes really pronounced when her sister leaves. So basically, we're introduced to Carol that lives with her sister in a flat in London. Yes. She works at a salon. A Revlon, yeah. Well, I think I don't think she works at Revlon. I think it's just a salon. I it want it to Revlon. be Revlon. Okay, it's Revlon. She works at Revlon. You. She works at Revlon. <laughs> okay. It seems that she is just a quiet person that's put off by a lot of other people. And we've all met quiet people that prefer to not you know, be surrounded or the center of attention. I don't think there's anything really unnatural about that. <laughs> really? Really, I don't. I don't. Um, she seems to get on fairly well at work, but she's quiet and kind of daydreamy. And looking forward in the film, it's like the seedlings of catatonia and the seedlings of her agoraphobia. She just would really rather be home and she, her mind's really not on her work. She doesn't really have any close friends, and she's not really dating anyone. From my point of view, she's not dating anyone at all. But this guy, Colin, seems to think that he is. This comes, uh, uh, Colin kind of swoops into the film as a character who's quite interested in Carol, who seems to do what a lot of characters do. And this was actually addressed a little bit in Sleepaway Camp, because that's an, that's as an, another example of a character that's not speaking when people are speaking to them. Yeah. But one of the things that I notice about the way people talk to Carolyn is maybe because they're used to the fact that she doesn't ever really respond unless it's one-word answers. They continue the conversation not really even 
acknowledging that she's not speaking to them, which is strange to me. If I were to talk to you, if I were to try to be telling you a story and you're not even giving me any indication whatsoever that you're listening or you have any intention of responding to me, especially if I'm asking you direct questions, my story will end and it will start becoming what's wrong with you? Are you hearing me? Are you listening to what I'm saying? These people seem to ask her questions and then come to their own conclusions and then continue on with the conversation as if they don't really notice that she's talking. It's surreal. They're it's, filling in these <clears throat> these questions. They're answering their own questions yeah, so for like, her. Do you think that if they walked away from her, it's like, oh, I just had a little chat with Carol. I think so. It's, it's like, really? really you had so. a chat with Carol, did you? Just or, like that guy's dating Carol. They're going out for dinner. She never responded. She didn't respond. She didn't seem interested whatsoever. Take a hint. Mm-hmm. Take a fucking hint. <clears throat> but then, you know, there's some people that would really rather people just take the hint, quote unquote, and stop bothering them and go away via the people who will never take a hint and are just going to keep pressuring to be with, hang out with, have dinner with, or whatever it is that they, they feel that they need to do. And they don't notice that the other person isn't responsive at all. Mm-hmm. And that's what part of Colin's problem is. Um, but given the chance, when people do ask her what's wrong, if they're not just filling in the question for her, she is very uncomfortable because I don't think she knows what's wrong at all. She's never been given a chance to articulate what's actually wrong with her ever when she's speaking with her sister and she changes the topic from being angry about the boyfriend putting his things in her cup. In the bathroom, she turns to the wall, noticing a crack and states that she must get this crack mended, which says worlds about her fucking psychological framework. Because, yeah, she definitely should get this crack mended. And even the boyfriend, a few scenes later, says to the sister, shouldn't she be seeing a doctor? Because he notices that she's a bit of an odd duck, let's Mm -hmm. say. Her sister takes great offense to this. Like, her sister's been ignoring this all of her life. And every time, it seems that this conversation's come up before, because she says, you know, you always change the subject whenever you talk like that, and you shouldn't talk like that. She's offended that he thinks there's something psychologically wrong with his sister. Do you think it's a matter of just, oh, stiff up her lips, she's fine, just pretend, if you say she's fine, then she's fine, and we're not going to acknowledge the fact that she's a, a, a young woman, but she's an adult woman that's completely codependent on her older sister, who barely is holding down a job, who doesn't really seem to... I mean, she talks to her like she's a child about the rent. Like, make sure you deliver this rent money. Yeah. But you don't talk to somebody that way unless you've had a history of them not doing it. Yeah. Although, I'd like to say that somebody in that frail of a psychological state shouldn't be entrusted with the rent money whatsoever. And the sister, who's such a fucking gregarious go-getter, should have paid her goddamn rent on time. I don't understand why when her sister left that she didn't just, oh, before we leave for vacation, how about I just step by the office and drop off this rent money? Yeah. I don't understand why it had to be your sister that did it. I don't know. I think that she's just too embroiled with her affair with this uh, other married man. Affair, you say? It's an affair. And that's partially what part of what is aggravating Carol is that not only is it a relationship with a man that is just gross to her (laughs) and having him in her house and in her space and putting his goddamn straight razor in her fucking cup. 
Yeah, I don't understand what that's about. It's disgusting. That's what it's about. And it's him just stepping all over their lives, basically. If you want to really blow it out of proportion, but not really. He is just basically barreling in and stepping all over their lives. So he barrels in and steps all over the sister's life, and that's all she really cares about is this gentleman, this not-so-gentle gentleman. So she forgoes things like caring about her sister, eating food, preparing food properly, cleaning her apartment, paying her fucking rent. She doesn't care about any of those things. Mm -hmm. It's a sign of a very toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. But those are things that I think that we only really recognize nowadays. And maybe when this was screened, something that wasn't even fully recognized for what it was. It's possible. I mean, there is a sense that Carol and Helen have like this weird relationship where it's a sister that an older sister that feels, well, I'm kind of saddled with this younger sister of mine. And when she does something for herself, she gets fully into it because she's like, I'm not going to let you drag me down. I'm not going to let the fact that I have to take care of you and be the the brains of the operation of this little apartment thing. So like when when siblings can have this type of relationship where one is more way more dependent than the other one, the one that's usually the most independent and has to make all of the decisions, they can feel completely justified in thinking that, well, I get to have my affair and you don't get to fucking say anything because I handle everything around here. So shut your mouth and sit down. Unfortunately, that conversation never happened. No. And unfortunately, nothing that Carol really does portrays that she is 100% dependent. Us sitting here as the audience, once or twice through the film, would say things like, well, you're living off your sister. Of course she can have whoever she wants in her apartment. Or you're living off your sister. She can handle the rent, however. You know, she can eat what food when she wants with whom she wants. Leave her Mm -hmm. the hell alone. But that's not really a conversation that happens. She could have been free of her sister if she wanted to be free of her sister by getting fucking psychological help for her. Mm. But for the 20-some years of Carol's life, her illness has been completely ignored. Mm. And it is an illness. She does have... She has um, a catatonic stare from time to time. She can barely string words together. She's extremely nervous. She has human touch aversion. She has agoraphobia. She can hardly think straight and uses word salad. She talks about things that have no context to the conversation half of the time. She can barely answer a question. She seems to have, I think she's suffering sleep deprivation as well. Oh? Yeah, I really do. Because she, there's a few times when she's kind of stumbly, even before she has her actual breakdown, um, and in a fugue state. Mm. Not just uh, psychosis or catatonia, even a mild like catatonia. I really think that she's suffering from sleep deprivation. I really do. But that's me playing armchair psychologist mm. on a fictional character. <laughs> as fun as it is, it has no bearing here or there. But she, these aren't new. These aren't new symptoms. And like you said, that her sister talks to her like she's a little kid and she's been dealing with this all of her life. Mm-hmm. It just reinforces the fact that these symptoms aren't fucking new. So if Helen ever really wanted to be free of her sister, she could have got a doctor for her. Mm-hmm. It's aggravating from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. Then you have somebody like Colin, who's introduced fairly uh, early as the boyfriend question mark. I mean, there could be people watching this film that would wonder why I question that, because mm-hmm. they seem to be dating. But I don't think that they actually are. I think he's just another overbearing male in her life. 
mm-hmm. that's sort of bustling his way in and trampling all over her. Mm-hmm. Or is that is it too subtle? I think that Colin before... I mean, when we're first introduced to Colin, I don't think he really is a bad guy. I don't think that he's really doing anything that anyone would find abnormal except for the fact that when you realize that he's just dealing with someone who has a mental illness, whether he realizes it or not. Um, I think that the fact that she's barely, she barely speaks and is somewhat canatonic towards him, which makes me wonder how did he even get the inclination that she was vaguely interested. There had to have been some kind of, there has to be more of a solid conversation before this movie happened because while this movie is happening i bet you she says five lines of dialogue to him yeah in the entire run of the fucking film and they're completely benign lines of that. yeah and almost it's like uh, he'll take agree agreeance through omission so when she doesn't say something she's not saying no she's not saying yes she's not really saying anything but maybe in his mind he thinks well i'm the man and i have to make I guess she, if she doesn't say no, she's not interested. Or if there's no other man in the picture, because he does ask her uh, when she had plans already, if who's the lucky guy? Yeah. And since it's not a guy and it's just a dinner with her sister, that means that she's available. And if she's available and she's not out and out telling him to fuck off, yeah. Then I guess everything's cool and. It's not until we last see him where I feel, okay, you've actually kind of crossed the the realm of, I'm interested in you and I want to date you and you're not really saying no. So it, then it crosses into the realm of like, that's fucking bonkers. Yeah. Especially yeah. when we see him sort of frustratingly talk about Carol with his buddies at the bar. He does seem to really like her. That's the thing. But I, but I don't know if it's a genuine affection or if the fact that she's so... Uh, repulsed <laughs> she repulsed, pushes him back by his advances but and not in a direct way he might think well this is the chase right this is how you he does ask if she's playing hard to get yeah with that first scene when we're introduced like he establishes that she's not dating anyone else mm-hmm. establishes that he really wants to date her yeah every day all day because he's yeah. asking her what's she doing later that night what are you doing tomorrow you know and making plans that trying she's... to yeah in, from his point of view, agreeing to buy her silence, which is maybe a sign of the times. Like, you know, it nowadays we're, we're very concerned about the bar- the boundaries of consent. Well, exactly. And, and I think that that is something that maybe in the good old 1965 in the UK might have been lost. But I think that uh, I, I still think that the fact that, you know, she did technically cancel plans on him twice. Uh, he he was kind of like, okay, well, I'll just take you home then. And uh, he tries to kiss her. It's not... Rec- I feel like by the time... I feel like the trying to kiss her very subtly and slowly, like leaning in and then, okay, I'm going to try to kiss you. I feel like that reaction, her reaction to that should have been like it. Yeah, he should have like... It, because, because, yeah, because I feel... not like, followed her, not talked to her I, ever I again. Feel, I feel like leaning in and trying to kiss her and her running out of the car almost into traffic and then not saying anything to you. I was like, okay, man, that's your go. You went for broke. But even so, you say that she canceled plans on him twice. No, she didn't. She never agreed to any of those plans. They did not have dates. But they didn't, she didn't say. That doesn't matter. What he should have done the very first time he said, let's meet at seven. And she turned around and walked away from him. 
That's not an answer. If I said to somebody, so we're going to meet tomorrow at seven and they turned around and walked away, I would not expect them to be there tomorrow at seven. But it's not. But even the way that she acted that scene is not as though she turned on her heel aggressively and then closed the door on him. She she did acknowledge that he was speaking to her. I guess people only respond to aggression. Lesson learned. I'm often reminding people that I might not be emoting, especially in in times of of panic or duress, Mm -hmm. when people wonder why I'm not panicking or under duress. I'll need to remind them that I might not be, you know, showing these emotions. If only her character had had a little more life experience or a little better communication with people or people around her that genuinely did care about her, Mm -hmm. she might have learned those tools on how to not let people walk all over you, not let people answer for how you're feeling or thinking mm-hmm. and be able to tell people that, you know, just because I'm not emoting right now doesn't mean I'm not happy or sad. Yeah, well, Carol is essentially like the human human equivalent of a, like a grocery bag in the wind, yeah, right? she really is. So... With beautiful hair. Yeah, just like a grocery bag. Now, she, so, I mean, I don't think that... I'm not saying that Colin's behavior is excusable. And I think that anyone with a semblance, if she doesn't have a life experience to say no, he should have the life experience to know when a lady is not interested in you, sir. Yeah, and, like you said, he needs a little bit of dignity. Yeah, like, like there, there comes a point where you can uh, express your feelings to a lady or try to make arrangements with a lady. And when those plans don't come to fruition and there's no real exp- uh, explanation... All you have left, dog, is your fucking pride. Just adjust your tie and just be like, all right, moving on. Yeah. And, and no harm, no foul. You don't need to chase her down no, because her or make up reasons. No, you don't need to do anything. You don't really need an explanation. All you need to know is that in a world where time marches on and we're all moving forward, you are no longer in this woman's path. So just veer off, man, veer off. Because that's all you can do, right? That, or if you really genuinely care about her and she's acting very strange, get some fucking professional help. Yeah, ask her, or or perhaps, um, and you picked up on these uh, cues in the dialogue more than I did, but once you mentioned it, I said, oh yeah, you're absolutely right. He is constantly referring to how her behavior is reflecting him and how it's making him feel and and not really concerned with why she's behaving this way mm-hmm. so it's 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 more like this is this is how i feel and this is what's going on with me and i feel and i feel he's not really taking two seconds to to really see if she's genuinely all right because when you say you look ill or did you get fired or something and someone is just almost like they're having a stroke in front of you trying yeah. to talk yeah it's like well okay maybe something more than this just this is wrong See, we've established that Carol's unsettled. Yeah. Yeah. And not even, you know what, aside from the fact that, I mean, I mean, Catherine Deneuve is a, a very beautiful woman. She's not likable. I don't understand why, why like Colin's pursuing her. Yeah. Like, because, because it's, it's, it's like, okay, so she's a beautiful woman. She doesn't even seem remotely interesting. She's though. staring right through you too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. She's not interested. I don't understand, but I suppose that's what men do to blonde women. I'm a man. I don't do that. In 1965. Oh, okay. But 
certainly a lot of her behavior is lost on Colin because a lot of her behavior is lost on her sister who's known her all of her life. And her sister does talks to her the exact same way, which is super fucking depressing when you really think about it, that she's lived 20 years of her life like this. Because I, I don't think that this is a new development. What does become new is that the sister is going on a holiday. Yeah, she's going to go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah, with her boyfriend, question mark. Everyone's a boyfriend, question mark, to me in this film, because she's dating and seeing quite intimately and regularly a married man. Yeah. Yeah, what a shame. But anyway, it's her affair, like she says. She has a point. She does have a point. It's totally her own life. And they seem happy, seems fun, whatever. They're going on vacation. She knows, look, it's one of those weird situations where she knows it's not like this guy is sneaking around on her. She's quite aware that he's a married man, and she clearly doesn't care. Yeah. So she's getting something out of it. Yeah. It's also a shame, though, that Carol is teetering on the edge of a psychological break. Nobody seems to notice because it is a super subtle psychological break as it is Mm -hmm. no one's really identified what her problems are she can she can't identify or articulate what her problems are Mm -hmm. so her sister leaving town is really that high watermark of her tension Mm -hmm. so we're heading into this like area where there's this man pursuing her that she doesn't even know how to fucking talk to to tell to go away Mm -hmm. her Work is getting a little uncomfortable because she's being dreamy and spaced out. Probably uncomfortable with the idea that her sister's going to be leaving. And now that her sister's gone, she's uncomfortable with the entire existence. And the rent has gone unpaid. Mm -hmm. The house is getting messier because before her sister left, she was going to cook dinner for her and her boyfriend, Rabbit. Mm, As it is. But... Absent-mindedly, Carol has taken this rabbit out of the fridge and left it in the apartment. So there's another level of disgusting things going on in this apartment. And she's already, you know, one of those girls that will wash her hands quite frequently. She washes her feet when she comes in from work. Mm -hmm. Thank God, because she doesn't wear socks, which is, like, absolutely disgusting to me. (laughs) So I'm so glad that she washes her feet. Oh, my God. As much as I hate seeing someone touch their feet. I'm so glad she does. But, you know, right in the face of her having what you had said, you know, that there's many scenes of her at sinks. She's constantly getting glasses of water, washing her hands, washing her feet. Yeah. In the bathroom, in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice how much she's around sinks because I, I, I myself enjoy a good sink. <laughs> I just thought that in a world of choices, I was wondering if Polanski was just, well... There's no, there's no lines in this scene, so we, she's got to be doing something. Just have her at the sink. Yeah, that'll telegraph her psychological state to everybody. Yeah. Her world is definitely cracking, and the cracks are showing. Aside from that crack that was actually there at the beginning, or so we think, that she had absentmindedly mentioned that she should get mended, the cracks do begin to appear, not only in her own psyche, but in the apartment, whether they're actually happening or not. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even really matter, mm-hmm. I don't think. Now, it's a good, it's almost like an hour into the film before the first bout of something weird even really happens. Really weird. Like the crack in the wall. Yeah. And that would startle anybody because unless you know what this movie is, you might not even realize that you're watching something that's going to have some twisty elements to it. Mm -hmm. At that point, most of the sounds that you've heard 
are the sounds that she hears alone in the apartment. And you've almost become very comfortable with those sounds. Uh, ticking clocks, dripping water. Dogs. Dogs yeah. from next door, the bell and the nuns outside mm-hmm. across the way in the courtyard. Her sister having sex. And her sister having sex. Yeah. Which kind of, she, she kind of freaks out. She sexy freaks time. Out. Sexy time. Now, I posit that with the sisters leaving and her psychological state deteriorating and things like the phone ringing continuously, whether it be the landlord calling looking for rent or this almost mistaken for a heavy breather, but just like a dead phone line, somebody's calling and not talking, mm-hmm. which could unnerve anybody. Uh, she's becoming more and more unraveled. She starts to have these dreams, these really vivid dreams that are devoid of sound and that's the one thing that would unlike most dream sequences where there's something very obviously to tell you that it's a dream the only real difference between the way that her everyday life in the apartment is shot and the dream sequences are shot is that they're devoid of sound so we don't get these sounds that we become very comfortable with like the dripping water and ticking clocks and stuff like that these rape sequences they're like rape nightmares have absolutely no sound which lets us know that it's a dream sequence of some sort. But do you think it's maybe the absence of the sounds of her sister having sex every goddamn night that is has like acted as a trigger for these rape dreams? I don't know if that's the case. I do think that I do agree 100% that the last thing that tipped her over the edge was the fact that her sister isn't there. She seems to be the compulsive nature of her psyche would be that anything that is a distraction of routine what could send her spiraling out of control and i think that her sister leaving and her even even though she might not feel like she needs her sister because they don't delve into that at all but let's just say for the sake of argument that her sister is overprotective and thinks she needs to control her younger sister's life and let's just assume that her younger sister probably doesn't think that it's that much of she's that much of a burden on anybody yeah so going with that assumption even in the back of carol's mind her sister would be a safety net in any capacity once that safety net is removed it could simply be the idea that you're just alone in this apartment and if she has this fear of being raped if she has this repulsion against sexual advances on her and we're not entirely sure why at this point and even human touch even she human does touch. recoil from pretty much anyone touching her she's not interested at all mm-hmm. then these would be natural fears to her that would just be exemplified i um have had bouts of agoraphobia in my life and they come on without warning and when i'm starting to get really anxious about the outside world It's almost this nebulous fear of something bad happening to me if I were to leave the house. So I can kind of relate to, like, maybe specifically for her psychological damage, it might be specifically rape. For me, it's never specifically one thing. It's always some weird made-up fucking thing in my head that's going to happen to me if I leave the house. So I... So... It could be the fact that she does regularly hear her sister have sex, so it's always in the the back of her mind. Yeah. And then... When that's gone. When that's gone, 
again, which is part of the routine, and then the fact that she's has these fears and she's alone in the house. It could just be this is what she's afraid of at this moment. The idea of like some greasy, wild eyed, tank top wearing dirt bag. Dirt bag. Trying to come in and, and do all kinds of gross shit to her. Part of our apparent repulsion toward the boyfriend. And um, we're probably going to use the word repulsion a lot. It's aptly named this film because that's her reaction to quite a few things. Yeah. Um, which I can completely relate to. She finds his dirty um, undershirt on the floor of the bathroom. Oh, yeah. And my first inclination is for her to throw it in the garbage like she wanted to do to his toothbrush and straight it's razor. Straight razor yeah. She should have just thrown it in the garbage. Instead, she pauses and spends some moments with it. And I think she even inhales his manly musk for some fucked up reason and instantly pukes. Yep, instantly. I don't know what possessed her to not just throw it straight in the garbage. But it's definitely something to do with these greasy dream men, these nightmare men that are accosting her in her sleep. Mm -hmm. It's not always the same man either. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Which tells me that it's not, she's not afraid of a specific person. Not at all. It's just the idea of somebody dangerous being in her home and trying to rape her. That's what she's afraid of. Yeah. They're there in her space and they're putting their hands on her. It's always how it begins. Mm-hmm. Um, terrifying. And I don't think that she realizes it whatsoever i don't think she of course doesn't realize that she has any of these problems because no one around her is helping her realize these problems i don't think she knows she has agoraphobia whatsoever i don't think she knows she's afraid of the outside i think that when she just doesn't go there and feel slightly better it's hardly noticed it is all really subtle it's subtle enough to carol that she doesn't know that she has this problem it's been subtle enough to her family apparently all of her life and her boyfriendly type guy Colin doesn't notice any of this stuff and as an audience in this day and age I don't think it's that apparent to absolutely everybody either because when we're dealing with something like a rotting rabbit all we think of is that it's really gross we've had rotting rabbits and dead rabbits and dead pets to deal with another psychological horror that's presented in a much more shocking manner they're usually nailed to someone's door or cooked in a pot on the stove aren't they Mm-hmm. This one is just simply left to rot. Or its head is found in her handbag mm-hmm. at work by a coworker mm-hmm. who's also being treated poorly by a man. It's just like a theme. It just seems to be a theme in this film mm-hmm. that all the women are being treated very strangely by men and putting up with it. Mm-hmm. Or is it just me? I don't think it's just you. I think that Polanski very specifically has these elements in his films and even going to Rosemary's Baby I mean I understand that the the book existed before but I mean this was a project that he was very much interested in doing you have a woman who is essentially punished for conforming to more of like a 30s or 40s housewife routine as opposed to the modern woman of the 60s which should be breaking off the shackles of the patriarchy. In Repulsion, it is very much a case of men attempting to have their definitive roles reinforced 
And which is why Colin thinks that, well, this is just how it is. I will make the decisions. Mm-hmm. I will make the decisions because you're not talking. So that means that I'm just going to dinner at seven. See you tomorrow. You're not saying no. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to assume everything's fine. And then when you reject my advances, I'll be upset. But I'll just come back because apparently, apparently the, you'll never say like no woman saying no. It's just I have to try harder. It's a thing that Polanski does really, really well. And I think in the the original story for Rosemary the Baby, he definitely teased out a lot more of yes. that horrible dynamic between yes. men and women and, mm-hmm. and a woman being absolutely repressed mm-hmm. and fucking breaking down because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does the same thing to an amazing degree in Death and the Maiden, yeah. where we get to see a woman break down right in front of her husband, but with reason. And be convinced that she's not crazy. One of the few examples of a fucking psychotic woman on mm-hmm. screen that is 110% convinced and only shakes from that for a very small portion of the film, 110% convinced that she is not fucking crazy mm-hmm. and that everyone is fucking with her. Mm-hmm. And she's right? Question mark. And Rosemary's right? Yeah. And Carol's right. Carol's absolutely right, yeah. She's absolutely right. But it's so much more subtle. And you can put those three things on like a bar graph. Yeah. And where repulsion would barely register as Mm -hmm. far as asking a typical audience, like, is there a horrible broken dynamic going on between men and women here? Hardly noticeable in repulsion. Although it has a much greater effect there's a higher body count, let's say. Mm-hmm. Rosemary's baby is about 50-50. Yep. Everyone can agree that she's being repressed and treated terribly by mm-hmm. people around her, specifically men. Especially in the the birthday party scene, that's very... Um, when you have modern women come in who are not conforming to the way that Rosemary is conforming, that is like the absolute... Uh, like the lens has been turned. That is definitely what this movie is about. Yeah. Yeah. And then Death and the Maiden. Yeah. And, and something that not many people can relate to, having somebody being able to face their attacker that not only had them at their mercy once, but had them at their mercy for a very long time and was kept in a prison camp scenario and repeatedly, systematically tortured and raped by this person. And they finally have the tables turned and are able to have their captor and force a confession and force some sort of revenge upon them. Uh, 110%. There is a broken dynamic between men and women in the way they treat one another, specifically men treating women poorly. Mm -hmm. I think I much rather enjoy the subtle version myself, not only because it has a higher body count. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this, because I was curious what Polanski is presenting in Repulsion would be at the time very good examples of a very subtle psychological breakdown. Every we we know through uh, watching people with compulsive behavior now. I mean, for fuck's sake, they make television series about it. But we know now that yes, being obsessed with being clean, personal cleanliness, but then doing something that seems strange, like having rotting meat sitting there and not acknowledging it or touching it, being fine with certain aspects being filthy, other aspects being clean. Do you think that the audiences in 1965 would have gotten that or would that have just confused the fucking hell out of them? I don't 
think that by and large the audience would have gotten it the way that we get it now because we have Fatal Attraction under our belts. Yep. We have May under our belts. Mm-hmm. We have Alice Kills under our belts. We have a lot of really good examples, let alone just the public um, light being shone on mental illness the way it is. Mm-hmm. And the case studies that are freely available and the people that are more willing to talk because stigma is being lifted on a lot of these things mm-hmm. where like you can talk about agoraphobia, something that I was aware of as well that just hasn't really wiggled its way into the show yet or wiggled its way out the door yet. Oh, the fact of no my, pun my, my, my agoraphobia? <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. Yeah. Or my human touch aversion, which went completely 100% entirely unnoticed until I was nearly 30 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of things are something it's a talking point now right Mm -hmm. so i don't think the audiences would have gotten it as much in Mm -hmm. 1965 Mm -hmm. specific audiences yes people who can relate to this people who are suffering that people who had family members that behaved like that Mm -hmm. and who knows it might have opened a little more door for talk so that people would have recognized i've said a couple of times i wish people who tried to date me would watch this film (laughs) so then i wouldn't have to explain anything to them ever i hope they would have they wouldn't think that oh i see this is where this is leading. Uh-oh. Time to go. <laughs> yeah. No. Not not for that reason. Not because I, I want them to be bludgeoned with a candlestick or whatever, you know. Um, just so that when people are trying to make plans over and over and over again, there's a yeah. really subtle difference between saying no or not saying anything at all or trying to, like, defer plans. If somebody wants to come into my home and watch a movie and I say, no, maybe coffee, like, Please read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Don't want you in my vagina. <laughs> and I never felt like I was waiting to like drop the gorephobia bomb on people, but it was like it never came up before. It never really seemed no. relevant. We haven't really watched a film that draws this out of us, right? Mm-mm. Yeah. So it's a really good movie for that. That's why I wish people would watch it before trying to date <laughs> anybody. You know what I mean? Everyone should just watch it to get a better sense of people who aren't the fucking... 100% on, 100% of the time, salesman, fucking talkative, type A personality, alphas. Yeah, because sometimes it's not even about... Sometimes when people are dealing with, with people in, in those situations, they're like, hey, man, like I want to hang out, I want to do something. Or, hey, man, how you doing? Can I come over? And, I mean, I just... I either don't respond or I'll text back, I can't. And sometimes people will take it as, oh, is he mad at me? Or have I done something wrong? And and because that's what we do as people, we we instantly make things about us. And the reason why you don't want to see me or I don't want to see you or, or however you want to look at it is because there's a problem between us. Not really understanding that the problem could be with the individual and sometimes what they just need. I know what I need, uh, honestly, more than anything, is just cool off. Leave me alone. It'll go. It'll pass. It always does. Yeah. You know? So Carol's state has deteriorated further. Has it ever. It's gotten to the point now where she's no longer able to really function at work. She tried to come into work the day that her sister left, but she had to be sent home because her her boss and her coworkers were very sympathetic. She was in this canatonic state. She's something's wrong. So why don't you just go home? And she does. The next time that she's in work at work, they have to send her home. She didn't contact them for three days. And then when she did come back to work, she, not severely, but she did wound 
a customer. Yeah, doing a manicure can be um, a fairly dangerous thing, especially yeah. if you're removing cuticle, uh, which is what it looked like she was doing. Yeah. And she wasn't paying attention at all. And once a cuticle knife slips or even just an orange stick, you can cause a lot of very painful damage and your fingertips yeah. do bleed quite yeah. readily. Yeah. As my mom would say, if I got a cut like that, it's far from your heart, Wes. Quit your crying. But it does hurt. And this is a place that this woman went to to have professional work done. And so whereas this woman's not going to die, fucking ouch. And, all right, Carol, just why don't you just go home? There's an ultra picky people, too, that she's dealing with. So she just maimed an ultra rich wasp oh, Brit. Oh, any, 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 like an old British woman with cucumbers on her eyes. Could you imagine anything more pretentious than dealing with somebody like that? Now, Chris, they've all been talking to her about her being a little bit of a little spacey. And they keep asking her that if it's anything to do with a man. Mm -hmm. They're either asking her if she's been wronged by a man or if she's in love. Because I guess that her reaction and the way that she's acting indicates one of those two things. Mm -hmm. That a man has treated her wrong or she's in love. Because when a man's treating you wrong and you're in love, it's the exact same feeling, right? <laughs> I've never been in love with a man. <laughs> although I've been close. But uh, yeah, and when is... they treat you wrong, do you feel just about the same? I'm a big crier, so no. <laughs> I I found that absolutely fucking warped. That everyone in that building that she works in is fucking love obsessed. Yeah, that's all they think about. That's a about. gaggle of girls all doing their manies and petties and stuff. So maybe I don't know. Is that not how women interact with each other? You're you're a woman. Yeah. She says with hesitation. <laughs> I don't really go to get manis and patties, though. Oh. Um, since I was young, me and my mother and grandmother all know how to do that stuff ourselves. For oh, the most cool. part. So we just do that stuff at home. That's a home thing. That's an in-your-house-at-home-alone thing. That's not like a girl's day out. I know lots of girls that do that, and that's great, and that's fun, and they look great, and they, they get along, and they I don't know what they fucking talk about, though. Honestly, I have no fucking idea. That's like, I'm a, I have a better idea what goes on in a guy's locker room than I do what goes on in a salon. Huh. Honestly. I have gone to get my eyebrows started, though. I do enjoy that. But I go alone. And I don't fucking talk to her. <laughs> like the girl doing it. I just, I just don't, right? But that's me. Um, maybe that is 100% normal. And that's where that, that weird, nebulous quality of this film comes into play like audiences now or audiences in 1965 did they have that same reaction mm -hmm. or is that an insanely personal thing where somebody who is irked by talk like that such as myself notices it where everyone else in the world and 90 percent of the population sees nothing wrong and thinks that's absolutely normal there's a part where carol is talking to her co-worker bridget bridget's head trouble with men and she'd been crying the day before which was annoying and then she's telling carol while she's being sent home from work about a film that her and her boyfriend went to see mm -hmm. and all's well and good while she's explaining this charlie chaplin film which you pointed out was even a dated reference for yeah i thought it was funny it was the old chaplin where he's eating the shoes because he's so hungry i just I, I think they went to a classic cinema so i think they were or matinee where they yeah just so I, i'm pretty sure it was one of those things where, 
yeah, this is an old fucking movie. I just thought it was funny that they're just talking about... So we saw this Charlie Chaplin movie. I was like, it's 1965. Like, that movie was at least 40 years old by the time you saw it. Anyway. That was almost a semblance of normalcy in that conversation because someone isn't telling her what she's thinking. Someone isn't telling her what she should be doing. Someone isn't asking her if she's wrong and filling in blanks. Mm-hmm. Someone isn't putting their fucking toothbrush in her cup. And 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 it, Carol genuinely seems to be amused by the idea. And she come for for two minutes. Yeah, she comes out of her shell completely. And even with the idea of, oh, you should go to this film. And she's like, I'd love to go to this film. Yeah, she's totally stoked on this idea. And then Bridget absentmindedly like 90 percent of the population does mentions the boyfriend that's all she does carol's demeanor drops back to minus 10 her she turns away she stares at probably a crack in the wall in the basement of her workplace Mm -hmm. and her eyes go absolutely dead and it's end of conversation basically that's where her friend finds the severed rabbit head in her pocketbook there. well thank god now they have something to talk about <laughs> because that conversation was over yeah. yeah there's definitely something wrong with carol but there's that's never followed up on no it's kind of just like oh <laughs> i see this is a head bag and not your handbag <laughs> well off you go off you go so long so the rest of the movie is takes place very much as Carol no longer needs any reason to be at work because, I don't know, she's been fired, but she's been sent home early, and it's probably just like, call us when you feel better. Yeah, if she could take three days off just all of a sudden for no real reason and not have them beat her door down, they're probably not going to come looking for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the rest of the movie is is Carol just in the apartment, but uh, her... her uh, Man? Question mark? <laughs> Colin has been tying one on with the boys and they've been ruffling his feathers a little bit about his lady troubles and he, he's got to go talk to her. He's got to. So he comes to her house. Well, she's not going to open the door, is she? No, she's really freaked out. And it's one of, the, one of my favorite. Like, There's a lot of really good camera work and it's got a beautiful subject matter. Catherine Deneuve is something, if he's going to have a lingering shot lingering on her i am welcome to it because she's a beautiful looking person and there's a lot going on just with her face and in this apartment but they use a through the peephole camera to really good effect here it's the distorted faces mm-hmm. which is reflecting of course like her distorted perception of why these people are coming in and attacking her basically much like her dream attackers um the only other time that you see a distorted look is right at the beginning when the cracks are starting to show, as it were, and she, her sister has just left, and she's staring at herself in a kettle. Like, her sister has just left for dinner and left the rabbit in the fridge, and she's looking at herself in a kettle, and her face is all distorted. And she's sort of, like, reflecting on this reflection of herself, distorted. You don't see any camera shots really like that or any experimental camera shots up until the end when she has completely fallen apart and Colin is at the door pleading for what I'm not really sure because I think this is his chance and this is where I would be like this is your chance to ask her what is wrong and if you care about her this is where you're going to seek some professional help instead he's gonna break down her front door in a move that I think is absolutely fucking insane it's like look man 
I can maybe give a pass in good old 1965 if you felt like this woman is playing hard to get and it's your job to try to date her. But if the fact that she is not really giving you an answer to your dating questions is not enough of an indication is the fact that when you kissed her, she ran away from you in disgust. And if you only could see how fervently she brushed her teeth after that kiss. Um, We've all been there. But now, yeah. And, uh, but now that you're at her door, you know she's home and she won't answer you and she won't unlock the door and open it and let you in. And you feel compelled that your next fucking move is to beat the fucking door down. What do you honestly think is the step after that? After you break into this young woman's apartment, a crime. Yeah. A crime. A cr- I know. I'm, that's where my brain was just going because I, if I had seen that, I don't care what their deal is. I don't care what's going on next door. I really don't. But if I saw somebody beat someone's door in like that, I'd just call the cops. I'd just call the cops. I don't care what's going on. I don't care who has the right to be on one side of the door or the other. Mm-hmm. Someone just beat the door in across the road or across the hall or whatever, mm. I'd just call the cops. Bust the door open, comes to a running stop, and there she is, standing by the door, just tilted away from him. Doesn't really look afraid, but she certainly doesn't look comfortable. If only he could have seen not only her brushing her teeth after that kiss, um, the way that she reacts to the phone ringing. She jumps almost out of her skin when he knocks on the door. Mm-hmm. All of his pleading and stuff she's almost pulling her hair out in duress she's completely fucking terrorized already and then he bursts through the door so if only he could have seen all of that to see what he was putting her through but even if he did would he care probably not because once he gets into the door what does he say well he just basically saying is how her behavior has affected him and (laughs) he's sorry just i wanted to see you and and everything and he he's pleading with her she's not saying anything and then he goes to close the door because now all of a sudden, I guess he wants a private conversation. And the neighbor her. noticed and her dog. Yeah. 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 So it's Carol in the hallway with a candlestick. Dun, dun, dun. Where's Mrs. Plum? <laughs> Probably screaming in terror. Carol fucking beats the motherfucking shit out of this guy. The look on Carol's face is very... Frantic, but also kind of cathartic because she's, ah, stop, stop being here. Stop talking to me. With every clunk of that candlestick, she just seems to feel better. Yeah, semi-detached because you're expecting this to be some sort of crime of passion. (laughs) Doesn't say a word. Yeah. And then once it happens, she immediately goes to the kitchen, pulls a bit of the shelving unit apart, so she has the flat part that all the, the glasses or cans or whatever sit on. I don't know if it's a pantry or if it's a dish. It's a pantry, yeah. There's yeah. food and cans and stuff. She takes that and very crudely nails, barricades the door closed. Cause, and I don't even feel as though it's, oh, I just killed somebody and I don't want anyone to get through the door because she could just close the door and no one's going to fucking open it. I honestly feel... Like, the fact that he broke into the front door and burst that door open scared her so badly that she just wants to barricade the door now. Yeah, like, 
having the door closed and locked wasn't enough. Yeah. What if somebody else does this? It's yeah. It's not. I don't think the fear that she's going to be discovered. I don't think that even registers no, on her. Not at all. No. Not a fucking. Because way. he has, like most people do, in a metaphorical sense, bustled into her life. Mm-hmm. It trampled all over her. Absolutely. And then her next move, which I thought was really interesting, because I don't really quite understand where it's coming from. But again, you're dealing with a woman with a mental illness who is just coming apart. She puts, she takes his body and there was, she had the bathtub full of water from a previous episode, let's call it. Yeah, episode is a correct word. And she just puts his body in there. And then the the blood just, you know, the the water turns all red, or in this case, like a a dark gray. (laughs) And and then that's, that's the last we see of Colin. I think it's also because it's somewhere that she's not going to go because she's become quite uncomfortable. She's always been uncomfortable with the idea of of men and dating, sex and love and all those things. She's very, very uncomfortable with that. And I think she's uncomfortable with her own nudity. Um, We don't see her nude in this. No, we see her in various stages of undress. The closest we get is where she was asleep, I guess, on the floor and she had a towel draped over her. Yeah. Her bum, basically. Which sort of alludes to the idea that she she might have almost had a bath. Mm-hmm. But I think that her she's repulsed not only by the idea of sexuality, but by her own nudity now at this point. So the bathroom isn't somewhere that she's going to go. She had nothing but a bad time in there last time she hung out in there with the undershirt. The last time she was planning to have a bath, she drew a bath and then went to retrieve her shoes. And inadvertently found that one of her shoes were touching the her sister's boyfriend's shoes which triggered another horrible episode and the tub overflowed and i think it's been full since then and i don't think she's gotten in it i think so yeah yeah so i think that anything to do with the bathroom and nudity is just a a no-no place Mm -hmm. so she puts him in the no-no place i think that's where that's coming from but it's not really i would say it's not talked about but there's no one for her to talk to Right. So none of these things are going to be uh, explained to the audience. It's all show, no tell. Most of the film is all show, no tell, really, when you think about it. But at this point, now that she's killed Colin and put him in the tubby, I like in a more modern film, this is where she chops him up with a fucking hacksaw. Mm -hmm. But luckily, we're spared that. We are. Or unluckily, depending on what movie you want to see. But yeah. (laughs) She now is kind of going through the rest of her day, the... Because it's not really sure. We do know that her sister has been gone for two weeks. And mm. we know that through subtle cues, the the rotting of the potatoes, the rotting of the rabbit, we're getting a sense that, okay, time is definitely passing. We're not sure how the, the time frame between the killing of Colin and, and the next big thing that happens. But we do know that she has had a couple of more episodes about visioning of men breaking into her house. Um, also, uh, some of the, the, the more um, intense special effects in the movie, aside from the walls cracking, which were probably fairly complicated to do, we also have the idea of the, the wall sprouting hands and grasping at her. her yeah. It seemed like becoming the, malleable and yeah. that you fear or you get that she is fearing that people could just come in through the walls. Mm-hmm. The door is barricaded now, but. They could be coming in through the walls, which Mm -hmm. the hallway scene, there's a few, there's a scene in the hallway that's a little more subtle with only a couple of hands. Um, 
but later on when she's going through the hallway of hands and it kind of reminds me of the helping hands in labyrinth but way less helpful very less helpful yeah maybe because there's less of them Mm -hmm. Um, well some of the hands like like really grope at her like they grab her breasts and stuff like that it's sort of like being on a city bus i hope not Uh, no it's not that bad but i I do get very uncomfortable sometimes on a city bus, depending on the day, because I don't really, I've, I've really gotten a lot better with um, being touched by human beings. But some days, if I'm on edge for another reason, or if it's a stress response to another situation, there's days when I don't want even someone's shoulder up against mine whatsoever. So if you can imagine being in a sardine fucking city bus... Mm-hmm. what psychological torment that is and there's been times and i know i'm not alone in this because people many people i've talked to about this have this exact same reaction when it gets too bad on the wrong day just get off the fucking bus mm-hmm. i've done that n- numerous times maybe like not like hundreds of times but like do- a dozen times at the very least mm-hmm. just not wanting to be on a bus that full of people mm-hmm. and that's sort of how it feels even though that's not what's going on and no one's like touching my vagina and no one's like pulling my hair or touching my cheeks or anything like that that is super fucking repulsive. Yeah. It feels like that. Mm-hmm. So I really, I really do like the, the effects in that. It's even the cracking of the walls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Super effective and jarring. Mm-hmm. Very, very jarring. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the, the first few special effects that start happening the whole the first hour and a bit of this movie you, you wouldn't even think that anything like this was ever going to happen in the movie and if you had no idea that this was a psychological horror you might even be asking yourself what is this movie about so it really comes in now we have another guy that's going to show up the landlord he wants his money well oh fuck i forgot <laughs> i totally forgot about him and actually i didn't forget the whole time because the dude that also is very finicky about the rent getting paid I saw that envelope every time, and I was like, that's your rent money. Totally, me too. And I mean, even the first phone call, when Carol's on the phone with the landlord, she seems to be responsive. She's like, oh, it's the landlord. You know, you want to talk to my sister? She knows he wants the rent. She's If she had it, she probably would have given it to him right there, because Carol seems a little more, before she had her big breakdown, friendlier with the landlord, where the sister is one of those people that I'll never understand, that is like... Well, what does he want? Of course, all he wants is money. Oh, I'll get it to him later. I promise. I promise. Like, who talks to their landlord like that? They need yeah. a slap. It's like, oh, you're only talking to me because you want money. I'm like, yeah, because I'm your landlord and it costs money to live here. Yeah. <laughs> and if your rent is late, you shouldn't be dissing your landlord behind his back or putting him off. You should be like, when you have it in your goddamn hand, running it over there. Pay your fucking bills. I, I like, I really, so yeah, I was joking about forgetting about the landlord. <laughs> it's been on my mind. And it's part of why I hate her sister. Because I don't hate her sister because she's having an affair. I don't hate her sister because she's not paying attention to her sister's psychological problems. And I don't hate her sister because her sister ignores her and doesn't really actually fucking care about her. I hate her sister because she hasn't paid her rent. <laughs> Um, the landlord gets into the apartment because Carol is not answering it. And she's a shitty handy woman. A little bit. Yeah, that barricade's not exactly doing it. It's it's not exactly going to keep anybody out. Certainly not him. He just sort of kicks it open. Now, this landlord is not happy because he thinks that these ladies are giving him the runaround. 
and not paying the rent. But the second, the second she hands him the rent and it, and he gets it in his hand, man, does his motivations change. Yeah, pretty much. Because now it's not, well, he's happy that he's got the money, right? But now he's kind of like, <laughs> blonde girl, you say. Uh, I see you're wearing a nightgown. See you're wearing a nightgown. Do you always go around like this? Sopping his face with his rag because he's all sweaty and gross. He's like, are you hot? Well, let me get you some water. Uh, you're barely exaggerating. And you know what? No, you know what? To be fair, he's not that skeevy. And it is like so much more... But that's how it feels. It certainly feels that way. Yeah. It feels like, it feels even grosser than that because audience, you can't like see the sweat. You can't feel the fucking extension of groping hands, almost like his aura has reached out and phantasmagorically fucking groped your tits. That's how you feel. And that's so effective because that's exactly how she feels and beyond. Mm Mm-hmm. Because this is what's been haunting her in her nightmares. Exactly. Basically comes This exact fucking, fucking thing. This exact yeah. fucking thing. She barely knows this fucking guy, aside from the fact that he's the landlord. He's doing that thing that everyone's been doing, but this is really to the umph degree where he's having a whole conversation with her, and she's barely... I think she says, after she hands him the rent and says, I have the rent, I think her next line of dialogue is Brussels. And Something I, like that, because like she she goes, he's he's still angry or whatever, and she says, "I can explain," and he starts talking over her. Yeah. And yeah, the next thing is Brussels. And then, and then, after he sort of admonishes her for the the place being messy, a pigsty, and he almost, it's almost like he cares a little tiny bit because he's like, "You don't look too well. Here's some water. You what you need is some tea. I'll get you tea." Mm-hmm. You know, he seems to sort of almost go toward helping her. But then he's got a plan for her. Oh, yeah, he wants to help her. Yeah, he's got a plan. And it's like a plan that uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure has been like aped. And it's the stuff of Penthouse Forum. I'm going to say, dear Penthouse, I never thought it would happen to me. I always had a hard time paying my rent. My landlord was really understanding, and I always thought he was super cute. You've written this one before, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Or are you a landlord? <laughs> I am lord of nothing, let alone <laughs> land. Um, yeah. It's he, like... he seems to think that, yeah, we have sex, and you can just forget about the rent. Ew. And he just forces himself on her. Well, I think this is also, it plays cutely into, like, the accusations of any woman in 1965 that was doing anything of any fucking substance, obviously was sucking dicks, right? Because that's still an accusation that's tossed around today, that any woman who's earned anything in life has earned it on her back. People still toss this fucked up idea around. A uh, woman that has a really nice apartment is probably fucking the landlord. And it had seeds in the beginning of women having some sort of equality, mm-hmm. right? By misogynist fucking cunts and cocks. So 
of course he thinks that he can get away with this because this is the accusation that's tossed around obviously like freely constantly and it is this fucked up fantasy of old skeevy landlords everywhere i suppose you know what he did though that i can respect oh there was something he threw away that rotten rabbit and put it in the garbage yeah totally i do like him for that he's like to the dustpan with you uh even uh, though she's living in a pigsty and hasn't paid his her like hasn't paid rent and there's nothing really likable about her and she's semi catatonic on the couch He's still into that. Is it just because she's pretty and blonde? I guess. Or maybe he's desperate? He looks like a dude that might be desperate. But she fights him off. And then... Oh, Ron Jeremy looks like a dude that should be desperate. but uh... He's got a big wiener, though. How do you know the landlord's are hung? Hung like a driller killer. <laughs> well... He he kind of when he gets fought off by her and gets up and sort of composes himself, he's like, well, well, you know. And he must have something to offer, you know, down there if he thinks that she would be helped by fucking him for rent or whatever. Well, she's got something up there, which is the straight razor that was on the rabbit plate that had fallen <laughs> off. Yeah, because that's where you keep it. Yeah, that's like keep a straight razor with Marotten Rabbit Corpse. That's a better place for it, in my mind. Well, she fucking hacks this motherfucker up. Yeah. Hacks him up good. I really enjoy the... It's a really good scene. Repetition. It, <laughs> she really makes sure that he is not going to move anymore. Into ribbons. She cuts him into ribbons, basically. Yeah. And then, in in a move that I could only classify as we cover our shame... She flips the couch that he's on over his body and kind of feels like, yeah, that's good. You're right. If this was a modern movie, there would be a lot of more clever disposal of bodies. She would be dragging garbage bags around and it actually might even be kind of funny. But in this, she kind of feels into the bathtub with you. That's taken care of. I'll just put... It's almost like... (laughs) <laughs> she fucked up. She like spilt like wine on the couch, and she's like, "I'll oh, just flip the cushion over." Yeah, there you go. That's <laughs> fine. It's good. It's new. Yeah, because she even like spends some time walking in circles after this, right? And she mm-hmm. doesn't like pay the couch any mind. She's not like it's like it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. It is just like sweeping it under the rug. Just turn the couch over. So the couch is upside down. Yeah, that's high, that's the body underneath it. But if you just leave that alone, you don't have to worry about it. And we're not going to, like, take a bath anytime soon, so the body in there is fine, too. Like, yeah. We're not going to even go in the bathroom. So it's, it's fine. Yeah. Just like the rabbit on the plate in the living room is fine for days. Yeah. Which is almost more enjoyable. If you can enjoy those little psychological hits more so than having to have it visually fed to you in garbage bags dragged down the stairs, put in a trunk and driven out to somewhere like a, a river and then it bobs back up and you have a little laugh. The way that you kind of covered your mouth as you were trying to stifle a giggle as you did that. <laughs> it's cute, right? It's yeah. a little cute. It's yeah. cute. It's totally cute. It's not suspect. It's cute. <laughs> I appreciate those small psychological hits. Just knowing that the bathroom, even though we don't go in the bathroom, they don't even really show the door until later on. Uh, we, we know there's a bath. We know there's a body in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. That's enough for me. And the bathtub's full of water. Yep. Well, she's got one more severe episode when she goes to her bedroom. And that's another vision of a rapist attacking her. And then we're brought to, well, guess who? what? She doesn't live alone. Oh, yeah. We forgot about this, her right? Her sister is back. 
Thank fucking God. Mm-hmm. Now, she comes to the house in quite a state that she left it in. It's a pigsty. It's a shambles. It's a very British shambles at that. We're not talking like Hunter S. Thompson fucking hotel room mess here. Yeah. Not quite. You're not, you don't need hip waiters. <laughs> we don't need hazmat suits. It's not that messy. People react like it's that messy. There's like some magazines in Dietrich, you know, and the couch is flipped over and the bathtub's full of dead guy. It's not that fucked up. I think the bodies, the two bodies sitting in the apartment make it that fucked up. They don't even notice those right away. <laughs> but the door is hanging open, so her sister is on guard. Her poor sister. You know, I can't even say that she didn't, should have never left. And that could be some people's reaction. But no, she should have 10 years before got some fucking psychological help for her sister. Absolutely. Yeah. And also the fact that her sister left the apartment without the rent paid, is having an affair, left her sister to, in a way, deal with that because the other woman calls the apartment. Yeah, that's who was calling and why the phone is ringing all the time because... Yeah, and Carol had to deal with it. And she dealt with it, I guess, by pulling the phone out of the wall, but... You think you're clever, don't you? Yeah. I, I, yeah, and, and so she definitely felt bombarded by that. Then the phone was really the last... A vestige of the outside world that was getting in. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, was an aggressive woman calling her names and threatening her because she believes that she is Helen. Yeah, she called her a tart. Mm-hmm. And no wonder she called, pulled the fucking phone line out of the wall. Uh, there's very few things that I let uh, ruffle my feathers in the modern world, but being called a tart, I, I don't cotton to that. I'd never call you a tart. I know, because I know would. this fucking podcast would be over. If you call me a tart. And not over for me, because I would just find somebody else. Wow. I never. (laughs) Monocle. So the apartment's a shambles. Yeah. Her sister um, sort of surveys the scene, and there's something amiss. The boyfriend comes in with his Chianti. Well, they discover the bodies. And other people become alarmed as well. Mm -hmm, So the apartment quickly starts becoming full of interested passerby and concerned individuals. Yeah. Not quite the level of basket case where you have a bunch of fucking Hanna-Barbera characters. Like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Cardboard cutouts in the hallways. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's full of people, old British people who are, are surveying the scenes, discovering the bodies. I mean, I like the horrific look on people's faces when they're looking at the body in the bathtub. Especially the boyfriend, because he sees it, goes in, is totally fucking repulsed, backs up, almost leaves the bathroom, but then comes back in and gives another, like, and, really fucking horrified, grossed-out look. Yeah, we they don't show anything because that's not this type of movie. Mm-hmm. But you could imagine what somebody would look like after, let's say, conservatively spending a week in a bathtub full of water. Yeah. We would be dealing with skin slippage. Yep. Um, it would have naturally degloved on from the face, mm-hmm. let alone the rest of the body. There would have been all sorts of liquid displacement. Oh, that all that'd all be floating. Yeah. You know, it would be a soup. It would be it would be a bloated mass of crap. And the color would be just a horrible, horrible, horrible color. The smell would be horrible. You think the rabbit was bad? Yeah. This will be. Horrible, yeah. and I we went on for like if you think we're going on now, we went on for about ten minutes talking about what this would look like, mm-hmm. and 
We also now, as a more modern audience, have the benefit of crime scene photos, films like Seven, mm -hmm. things like that, that help feed our imaginations, let alone uh, true horror videos and, and uh, death videos and things like that. Um, forensic pathology mm -hmm. that I'm partial to following on Instagram and stuff like that. And just the internet itself. We have that to help kind of fill in that gap. So maybe we spend a little more time thinking about this than a modern, as a modern audience than we would have as an audience in 1965. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they would have had much of an idea of what that would have even looked like? I Outside think, of like cops and crime scene photographers? I think that people... And like your mom? I think that people and my mom, yeah, wow. yeah, she definitely would be aware of that. I think that my mom uh, and anyone of that generation probably would have thought that the horror was more about discovering a body and not really thinking about the fact that this is a body that's been sitting in standing water for days and days and days and what that would really do to somebody. Yeah, I think that obviously there would be a section of the population that would think about that. And a larger section of the population that would just take it at face value. Oh, body, right? Yeah. The same reaction they have to discovering the landlord's body, although it's been dead for uh, for not nearly as long, and it's not. It's in a different state, though. Yeah. Because, like, when I said cut to ribbons, I wasn't kidding. Like, we don't see it because, like you said, it's not that kind of movie. But mm -hmm. we get to see her doing it from his point of view. Yeah. And we get to see just how quickly those blows come with a straight razor that's sharp because mm -hmm. as far as we know it hasn't been used it's just been used to fucking annoy her by it being put in her goddamn water glass but she goes at him probably i didn't count like i should have like a good ocd girl that likes to count things we can just conservatively say she slashed him 20 times with it oh probably like 30 or 40 yeah yeah she had adam really really well and by the time he lowered his arm, she probably had all at his face and chest mm -hmm. as well. So he probably looked worse than the guy in the fucking tub. The guy in the tub probably was hardly distinguishable as human. Where this guy would have had just blood absolutely everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Her nightgown was pretty bloody after that. The couch, everything. Like, it was it was a real bloodbath, that kill. Yeah. Well, they find her just in a completely catatonic stupor on the floor. Under the bed. Yeah. Where you hide when you're a kid, mm -hmm. I suppose. Just completely done. Now, everyone is insisting that no one is to move her. Don't touch her. Don't move her. Helen's boyfriend picks her up and carries her slowly out of the apartment, assuming to either lay her down someplace more comfortable, because it's like, where are you going to lay her down? Her bed is completely overturned. Everything's a fucking mess. Are you going to lay her down? You can't lay her down on the couch. It's been flipped over and there's a body under it. Um, get it out of the apartment, I guess. It's not really clear where you're going, although all these witnesses, do they think that the house has been broken into and she is lucky to have survived? Do they think that these men tried to do something to her and she managed to fight them off? What do they think happened? That's probably exactly what they would think would happen. And that would fit really well with where she'd be coming to the story from, right? Mm -hmm. That... In her mind, yeah, these men did invade her, and she fought them off. And it's totally death by misadventure on both of their part. No mm -hmm. matter how much I thought that Colin was overbearing, and no, much, no matter what the landlord had to say to her about fucking cock for rent or whatever. Ugh. But he did force himself on her. Yeah, he did. For, and she fought him off. 
mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that if she were a communicative type, she probably could have talked him out of the fucking door. Mm-hmm. Like, pretty easily, even after that. And if she wanted to press charges for that sexual assault, fine. Which wouldn't have been something that would have happened in 1965. No. Unfortunately. But I'm pretty sure she could have talked him out the door. And I'm pretty sure she could have talked Colin out the door, too. Because she's had him turn around and walk away before. Uh, she didn't need to kill them. No. But in her, from her point of view, she did. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a lot of what the neighbors would think. That's what it looks like, you know, scared, catatonic girl. No one seems to know what her psychological state is either. So her sister's probably not going to be like, oh, yeah, she's an agoraphobic. And if these guys came into the house, she probably freaked out or she doesn't like being touched. So if these guys put their hands on her, she probably freaked out or she might have been raped before. She's never had sexual contact. These are things that we don't really know, but her sister doesn't know these things either. So her sister isn't going to go to the authorities or explain to the neighbors that, oh no, she had a fucking psychological break and went absolutely psychotic on both their asses. That conversation's not going to happen. So she's going to get away with it if she ever comes to. Because her eyes were open. She's unharmed. Physically. But mentally, I don't know. She could carry on exactly like the way she was from this point. Like she would have carried on having a body in a tub and a overturned couch with a body under it. She might have carried on for months or years just like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. the last shot, it returns to a family photo that's been referenced several times in the film. Shot in Brussels. Shot in Brussels. Uh, this time panning close on a young Carol sort of looking off. With what sort of look on her face, do you think? The look on her face looked dead. Like, angry is not accurate, but when you look at somebody with that expression, it, you, it, there is not affection in that gaze. But, but, it, but it doesn't really strike me as angry. It struck me as dead. And it's not quite to kowtow to the title of the film. It's not necessarily a look of repulsion. And it's a pretty sharp little photo for an old black and white photo, too. Mm-hmm. They zoom in pretty good. Um, there's been people saying that she's looking at who they take to be the father mm-hmm. with a look of mm-hmm. fear and repulsion and anger. Mm-hmm. And then they read 20 shades into that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give you that explanation. To me, to me um, while the way that the photo was lit with like 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 faces highlighted. Yeah, because there was like a, almost like a lattice work of, of a fence or screen over yeah. it. So, so it was highlighting yes the father or yeah. who we take to be the father yeah some some male yeah some, an older gentleman an older gentleman who so i think you could make the argument up and down about the fact that yes this is clearly her repulsion towards sexuality and 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 relationships and all of that stems from being sexually abused as a child oh she could have just been witnessing abuse um against the mother it's true. That or could something also be else. True. Something could have not happened to her at all. Or... or, or it could be an indication that that vacant, dead expression is the one that she carried throughout the film, and that is just to say that her mental illness did not manifest itself in the last two weeks of this movie. No, this the, has been all this, of her she, life. She is, this has been a troubled girl from day one. There's a lot of different layers that you could interpret that final photo at, and and honestly. Someone could give me a compelling argument to any one of them, and I would think, yeah, okay, sure. 
but I'm very impressionable. So if you gave me, she was sexually abused because X, Y, and Z, I'm like, oh, yeah. Now, if you said, well, she witnessed abuse, oh, okay. Or, or it's like, <laughs> well, maybe she just had mental illness from the get-go and nothing really happened to her. Mm, okay, yeah, I could see that. What I'm saying is all three interpretations, in my opinion, could be 100% accurate. I think, sure, yeah, they could be because we're not told either yeah. way anything about it. We're shown a photograph. That's all mm-hmm. we're shown. Uh, there's nothing, no facts are contained in that photograph whatsoever. The only thing that is upsetting to me about the whole thing, because none of those scenarios that you could posit are particularly upsetting because this is a fictional story. The only thing that is actually kind of upsetting to me is that the only fact that this photo does contain is that she has been mentally ill to a certain extent, all of her life. Yes. And that is very, very upsetting to me. Yes. And another reason why people should watch this movie, not only to be able to root between the lines when somebody says, ah, no, or doesn't respond when you try and make a plan. When you say dinner at 7 and they go mute, then you don't have dinner at 7. That's mm-hmm. just that's just the new rule, okay? Mm-hmm. I wish people would watch it for that. And um, as talking points to remove stigma against various mental illnesses Mm -hmm. one of the things that i think is the real tragedy of this film in the sense of the narrative is the fact that carol clearly is not a well woman and the people around her the close people around her who are supposed to care about her the most don't even seem to notice Mm -hmm. when it's very noticeable she's fairly high functioning there's a lot of high functioning autistics Mm-hmm. In the IT sector specifically, and there's been a lot of like articles and stuff about that in the last year, if not more. And there's a lot of high-functioning, nervous people in the fashion and modeling industry. A lot of high-functioning, obsessive compulsives in all sorts of fields, and mm-hmm. the arts specifically. High-functioning is part of the solution slash problem, is that they can all really get along well in their life, but people need to not ignore symptoms. And need to not make fun of or bully because mm-hmm. of symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a lighthearted, happy-dappy episode, ain't it, Wes? <laughs> it is. You know, sometimes I, w- when we get certain fan requests, sometimes things are going to take a little bit more of a serious tone. Because we could always be joking about, like, Driller Killer and all that kind of good shit. But, it, but other times it's just like, I have a, a severe phobia, Lydia, and sometimes I wish people could understand that. Like, sometimes we're going to have those conversations. But, yeah, for sure. But there's ups and downs in life, and there'll be ups and downs in the show, but I think this was a good show. I, think, I love I think, this yeah. film. So, yeah, mm. I had a good talk about it. And, you know, thanks, Chris, for suggesting it. You know, Chris is one of my favorite humans in the whole world, not only because he has impeccable taste in film. It goes beyond his deep love of necromantic he actually has a really 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 awesome taste in film so if you listen to Bind torture cast you'll definitely have eked that out all of them have a very vast fucking awesome appreciation of all kinds of film even superhero movies and stuff like that yeah but things like repulsion polanski amazing film and it's about time we class the place up a little bit thank you for that yes yeah Let's sweep out the fucking dead campers for five fucking seconds here, all right? I'll use my pitchfork. I'll help you. <laughs> what do we got next for them? Coming up next, we have Condemned. Okay, so 180. 
well, yeah, I figured, you know, we'd bring them dead camper bodies back in and I'll use my pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an urban, inner city, addiction, punk rock, fucking splatter fest. That I just absolutely love. And a double thanks to Chris for sending me that because I've been chomping at the bit to watch that for the longest time, actually. I like it because we're having some fun and we're on our way to episode 50. Yes, we're getting closer and closer every minute. And I'm excited because then I can do my Sally O'Malley bit. (laughs) Class the place up all over again. (laughs) And on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.